Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Create More podcast with me, Ben Stewart. This fortnight's episode will be with Jason Bruges, who have a fantastic design studio in Old Street and who specialize in interactive installations. They're... Um, it was great to go around. I got got a chance to go to the studio. This was fresh off the back of uh, of their trip to Cannes, where they did some amazing work with a. Uh, I, I'll try and sell it to you with a uh, with a massive full size digital lion that reacted to the uh, the emotion of Twitter. So if that doesn't lure you in to listen to the rest of the podcast, I don't know what will. Um, but I should, I'm going to give you a little bit more background as well because um, so. The studio was formed in 2002, and they exp- they've expanded. They're well over 20 people now. And when I went through the office, you know, they introduced me to their architects, lighting designers. They've got electrical engineers, and um, they've done all sorts of work. I mean, from 2002 to now, they've worked. They've worked all over the world. They've done. They've done projects. Uh, they've done projects for the Olympics. Uh, they've won numerous awards. They've. Uh, they've worked with Channel Four, with Aston Martin, with Dyson. Um, and they've just done some absolutely stunning work. I mean, visually, it's just spectacular. And kind of, really, if you're if you're going to Google something, if you if you're not listening to this through Acast, which you should be, uh, just Google, um, go and look up uh, Winterlight, which was um, 500 LED powered turbines uh, on top of the Hayward Gallery, and these are all on like flexible poles. And at night, it was it was absolutely beautiful just to see all these things flexing around. Um, which was brilliant, and the other project that I really, really liked was uh, was the Nature Trail, which was uh, an interactive wall at Great Ormond Street Hospital in 2012. Um, again, just before you even listen to the podcast, just go and check them out because uh, I feel it sets the scene a little bit for the podcast that you're about to listen to. But um, it it was just really nice to go into their studio. I mean, as I said, you know, I got there at what six, half six, and the the studio's still buzzing on one of the hottest days of the year, and uh, yeah, it was great, and. Um, I think part of the reason why I like them so much is just um, it, it's all work that I wish I'd done at uni uh, and I just never got the chance to do it for whatever reason I wasn't in the right studio or the tutors didn't think it was the right direction to go in but all the work any idea that I kind of thought I'd had I would then see you know Jason Bruges on the other website they'd done something and done something way cooler than I would have thought of um, and it was yeah it was just really really I mean they do stuff that I don't know. I just I didn't think you know studios could kind of do stuff like this, and uh, and it was really fun, and it's always something I wanted to do. So it was great to kind of we nerd out a bit, you know, go into a bit of detail about what like programs they use and what type of stuff they use. So uh, yeah, they've uh, and one of the other projects is they did an interactive installation for Number Ten Downing Street door. So um, yeah, if you're not listening to this through Acast, uh, just go and check them out a bit before we start. And and if you are listening through Acast, then uh, I hope you enjoy the images that I'm putting in. And um, listen to the end of the podcast as usual to find out who's on next fortnight's podcast because uh, it's a it's a really good one and I'm really excited about it. So um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Enjoy. Good. 
One, two, one, two. Perfect. Um, I won't lie to you, that is my introduction. There is there is no beginning to it. So, uh, All right, so we're just uh, talking from here on in. We're just talking, yeah. And I guess the uh, the structure of this will be just a very free-form chat about really anything you want to talk about, and there's lots of questions I have as well. But, um, yeah, so it's it's a much more relaxed chat. I'm not going to edit it, so, you know, don't, don't, don't worry about answering any of the questions. But um, I have loads of questions, but I, you did just show me the massive lion from downstairs yes and obviously i do a bit of research so uh that was kind of the thing that kept popping up and uh i'd love you to explain a bit more about it because the lion. A digital lion kind of conjures up certain images but it's actually a digital lion yes so we were commissioned by mec who are a agency which specialize in analyzing um real-time information about the world we live in, um, particularly around brands and, and their customers mm. um, in terms of what they're saying about them. And they were sponsoring an innovation line, so people from the design world that aren't um, familiar with, with the Lions, it is the sort of advertising Oscars and takes oh, place it? in Cannes. Ah, okay. And very prestigious event, and it's where you, know, you, you need to be seen to be. And... Um, we were asked to create an intervention, an installation that would represent the process they go through in terms of analysing uh, data with respect to how brands are viewed. And this is a very much a 24-7 thing now. So yeah. brands are, you know, they're always being talked about. There's always conversations. There's always feedback. Yeah. And <clears throat> this is something which obviously is part of the work they undertake and they were really interested in something that would bring information on the process of analysing that information out of the screen and make it physical. So we talked about creating a digital art stroke design installation which would bring that to life so that people visiting the innovation line, so for the first year ever, um, this is a different type of line that celebrates um, digital innovation, technical innovation, and within one of the within the palais in Cannes we built this one-to-one lion <laughs> made from a cloud of small portrait mounted screens which viewed from a certain sort of anamorphic position yeah. represented a uh, one-to-one adult lion in terms of size and scale and yeah. you sort of would see the view from kind of one angle and the idea is that it would it you were saying it responds to social media yeah, input, so, so the more tweeted you so were. So from afar, you got this kind of lava lamp-esque sort of flowing colour movement, um, sort of dynamic changing object, mm. um, which represented the amount of positive and negative and neutral sentiment in can at that time. I should say near real time. We we're polling a database, but it's so did pretty you have much... like a live feed coming? We had live feed coming in from Poland, um, really? Where MEC's team there are analysing the <sighs> stats. That's cool. Um, and we had a database which would say, you know, is it a positive tweet? Is it a negative tweet? Is it neutral? Therefore, there's, there's enough words counterbalancing each other. How do they know if it's a negative? Does, do, as so in you the, can analyse words and they either have a positive or negative score. Really? And then you look at your 127 characters and you get a score for the whole tweet. Right. And therefore you're able to analyse. I didn't know that. Um, and there are different ways of doing it. You can do it on, based on language. You can do it based on language and human input. Anyway, the important bit really was to sort of say, look, we're creating this digital mirror 
for what's happening in Cannes right now. Yeah. So a great lecture had just finished and people would come out with positivity and lots of great things or the awards were happening and people were really excited about it. You so better see that. So they hashtagged anything. Yeah, then. so if, if, if we were picking up hashtags with CanLine, CanLine 2005, Innovation Lines, MEC, <laughs> us, whatever, then the, we were pulling from a certain series of threads and then if you would then see a yellow flash across the line, it would be something with a positive sentiment. Really? A black kind of flash of graphics running across the surface of the line. It's a negative, And white was somewhere in between the two. So the neutral. So at a distance, you're ready to say, oh, Cannes happy right now. Or, <laughs> or it's quiet or busy because it's also to do with the frequency of these sort of graphics rippling across this um, line made up right. of video pixels. So small screens. And... Also, funny things like uh, early in the day, people are a little bit hungover or a bit slow, <laughs> and it's quiet and it's a little bit more sedate. So you'd be able to sort of see and as the day peaks or troughs. Up. Lunch it dipped as well, so it's really interesting. And we'll be yeah. looking at the logs afterwards of how the lion, which we called a motorcan, so hash tag a motorcan as in a motorcon. Yeah. So just being the emotion of can at any one time, and then as you walked up to it. We actually analysed the space around the line. So as your head came near it, we the, the the sort of graphic kind of symbols flowing across the line would then reveal the tweets behind them. So you actually data. So as mine. you walk closer, the, yeah, you, it would open. the graphics would change and transfer just to a sort of more detailed right. graphic. I feel like, again, it, um, this is such a visual thing that we're talking about, and I, I I've seen the video, so I can kind of imagine exactly yeah. what you're saying. But I I, I post this on a thing called Acast and. Uh, the great thing is that you can listen to it on your iPhone or the podcast, but you embed videos and images inside the podcast. So ah, I'll see. go back after we've recorded this. And then and every link. time yeah, you mention a video, the video will pop up and you just click on it and it'll play. So <laughs> That's uh, handy. this is why I was so excited about doing this one because um, we'll come onto your website later, but the amount of videos on there and the amount of content on there is makes for a, I like to think a really good podcast. And I really hope, because you can listen to it through iTunes. It doesn't have the same effect. So yeah, yeah. listen to it through Acast. But um this whole idea of uh, having, you essentially have a display that can read the emotion of social media at any given time, but you can, you must know your own stats for Twitter, right? Can you, can you apply a Jason Bruges happy well, barometer? We, we could, I suppose, have um, some interior features here in the studio, hmm. which could give us a feeling for how yeah. the world is feeling about Jason yeah. Bruges studio. Or your um, feeling before you come into work so they know the how to treat you. Or how the team are feeling, or... <laughs> It, it, yeah, I mean, it could be a whole series of things. I mean, I have to say, I'm more of a sort of factual, I'm doing this, or the office is doing this, um, yeah. um, instigator on within the Twitter sphere. I'm not a kind of, I'm happy or sad. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to look quite closely at the type of words I'm using, yeah. how short or long <laughs> the, the message is. Um, yeah, I'm not a sort of... But it opens up, it just... Every, all of your little videos and all the kind of installations, you're in, to me, straight away open up all the other possibilities. Well, God, it might, I didn't even know you could do that. If you can do that, can you do this? And mm. things like that to the other social media groups. This is, this is all proprietary technology that yeah, you've kind I, of created yourself, right? So, yeah, so, I mean, the system we designed for that project is, is made from a series of components that are borrowed from different industries mm. or potentially sort of, uh, we're early adopters of them, yeah. but it's the system which is the the kind of first in class, the first sort yeah. of use of that thing, those objects all working together at the same time. And that's probably where we're doing something that's quite unusual mm. because we therefore we have a workshop where we prototype and test 
di- creative digital systems. Yeah. And also the, the really hard part and the bit that takes all the time is the bit that no one notices is you make it easy to consume, right? You do all that super hard work and then you put something that makes it digestible for an average person doesn't need to understand it it's just there in front of them and that kind of absolutely i mean playful side is hard putting something into the real world that is um a rule of thumb i think it was bill moggeridge stated this when he first coined the term interaction design is you've got to be able to sort of the entry level for a lot of these things is sort of understandable in sort of under 20 seconds mm. so it's you've got to engage people if you're putting things into the public realm with without and it necessarily any interpretation mm. and you've got people who are going to see them every day you've got people that are going to see them once in their lifetime so yeah. you want different narratives to be available to different groups of people based on the type of relationship they're yeah. going to create with your work do you do a lot of testing here where for a perfect example the very first project that served you was in the design museum which was the was the pandas and yes. i can't I can't remember the name of the actual the actual official name of called it. panda eyes panda eyes there you go and uh it was really one. I love the idea of robotics and things that uh, interact with you, but it was just such a hilariously creepy thing to happen that suddenly a hundred. How many pandas was it? It was a hundred pandas. Hundred yes. pandas all ten slowly rotate. Yeah, just rotate and stare at you. Was it was just really fun as well. But again, it was that quite complicated technology integrated. Yeah. And and as you said, I got it in ten seconds. But it had a much deeper story about the World Wildlife Fund, and you'd used certain, you know, you'd used a, a money a money panda, hadn't you? So yes. it it had extra depth to it if you wanted to explore. But anyone could walk in, have a little smile, and then and so yes. I guess that process must be hard because you must have quite a lot of technology here where you're like, we've thought of something brilliant, no idea how to implement that. Yeah, I have to say, generally speaking, the idea comes first, and the technology is a palette which obviously we're developing all the time. And you're thinking about what sort of things would then work to Mm. tell the story. With the Pandas, which was a commission from the World Wildlife Fund, and using their iconic 60s, 70s money box, the Mm. fiberglass money box, as you say, it was when we actually started unpacking them, because I said, I want to create a network of these things. I thought they were going to talk to each other somehow, perhaps. We started laying them out and realised they looked like a little terracotta army laid out on our then with a ping pong table in the workshop laying them out and secondly I had one of my desks to look at and I always just felt slightly uncomfortable these sort of glassy plastic eyes staring at me and it was just that gaze I thought wouldn't it be interesting if that gaze never became never was unbroken whilst you're walking around them hence the sort of tracking which we then um, established for, for the whole field of them to track you as you walked around them and and panda eyes really in terms of the name was just the sort of unsavory things we're doing to our world the sort of hangover mm. the how your eyes look the morning after sort of thing <laughs> um so that was the sort of deep and meaningful bit and then it was auctioned by uh, christie's for a sum of money to raise money for the world wildlife yeah. fund and um yeah it's and but you know the 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 bit inside that the the stepper motors driving them spinning mm. around again not that kind of rocket science like, but again, making a hundred of them work all at the same yeah. time, integrated at a cost we could afford to do for the kind of project it was. Yeah. And above that, we had a low resolution thermal camera that was used in Tesco's to monitor the queues of people standing waiting for things. So really? you can estimate queue times. 
we'd hacked into that and used that in a way that we could actually drive the movement of the pandas based on where every single person was in the room. It's a, fu- fu- it's a, it's a full safe way of doing it because you don't rely on lighting conditions. You're lying on temperature at the top of the people's heads. See, now you've just answered about five questions that I had. Um, doing the podcast, I was like, I really want to interview Jason Bruce. And we looked at, I was showing people the website and I showed the panda eyes. And uh, in Makes, we just got a new office and uh, I wanted to do a window display. And uh, obviously, the, I love the panda eyes one. And so we've, we're doing one called Mini Makers, which is like little make people that, that track your eyes. And I had no idea how to do this. <laughs> and you've just kind of answered a whole series of questions because we're using a Microsoft Connect. Yes. And, uh, but that was back in 2008, that, that Pandorize one. So you didn't have kind of easily available perspective technology to use. So you, how did you even find out about the Tesco's? We work with sort of lots of creative technologists and mm. boffins working in sheds who work with all sorts of extraordinary equipment oh, and things. So, so you have a kind of R&D. So we, we talk to people to find out, you know, what should we use for this? And um, since then, uh, we've worked... With, in fact, that's a technology that's very popular. Low-resolution thermal mm. tracking is pretty useful. Um, and it can be done not through glass, but it can be done through uh, red perspex, because it still works. Oh, um, really? Or, um, and, and certainly we've used quite a lot of different versions of the Connect and Carmine sensors mm. and okay. um, also low-resolution um, other types of layers of point source sensors as well. So um, there's sort of, uh, have you have you found anything that does work through glass? Well, the Connect does. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it reduces its uh, the, the power of it is reduced through glass. Do you um, do you still get do you still get? I mean, you're running your own practice. It's twenty people. Do you still get as involved at the beginning as you? I mean, do you still get stuck in in the workshop or do you do you have you? I try to get involved, but really. The, the window of time I have to look at any one thing is massively reduced. Yeah. So, um, and therefore, yeah, the hands-on bit always takes longer than you think. Yeah. So sort of, I'll go down and mock something up. It'll take me two hours. It takes you all day long. Mm. So it, it's, I would like to do more, but at, at the end of the day, I'm conducting. Yeah. And there's a team of very talented people, most of them which are better than me at sort of <laughs> programming, soldering, putting things together and mocking up. So, yeah. um, Actually, it's something I watch from afar, but I'm dabbling in and guiding and conducting and sort of looking over the shoulder. Yeah, oh, just, yeah, just yeah, do that. Yeah. Just do that. So, because so, you, you worked, at, um, you worked at Foster's before you started. Yes, it, didn't you? indeed. And that was. Uh, so, how long has how long has you have you had your own studio? The for? studio's been running since um, it was incorporated in 2002. We probably did some of our first projects in 2001, and I started working as a sort of artist working with technology in 2000 mm. so um and were you an architect at foster's then so yes so i was a architectural assistant which i think was correct term okay yeah yeah <laughs> got to use the right terminology um, yeah at uh, foster and partners and foster asia mm. so um working on chet black cock and Citibank and hsbc wow. in london and then i moved um to pursue more artistic endeavors um mm which I ended up being Imagination, um, working on like the Millennium Dome. Um, wow, that was a massive project. And which was the BT Pavilion there. Mm. And I was a senior designer and interaction designer. So self-taught as an interaction designer as a result of my period at the Bartlett working on the interaction design oh, okay. lab there under Professor Stephen Gage. All right. So 
what because i'm really interested in how your practice started because uh i talk to my friends a lot and a lot, our dream is always to start our own practice and to get the opportunity to talk to someone who has run their own practice uh your did you ever set out to think do you know what i want to do my own practice or was it i want to do my own projects just kind of on my own or were you always like no i want to work with other people because it's it- i i think it was really came out of it was an evolution mm. And I had a skill set that was architectural and technological and artistic. And it was how am I going to make a living doing these things? And I think I got closest to sort of sorting that out in my head whilst I got to imagination. Because I saw a world that was a very different multidisciplinary world. Mm. Had an R&D department, projectionists, people with graphics, multimedia, all these things that are very different. And projects very quick, very theatrical. And I was thinking, oh, this is quite different to an architectural setup. Very interesting to see how that works. And and the way a more agency-like environment sells itself, really interesting. Mm. So I learned a lot from that. And blending... What do you mean an agency sells itself? As in... Well, the, 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 the sort of selling and pitching is very different to mm. how, traditionally, how an architecture practice pitches and sells itself. And I just found that kind of really interesting. It's not... It's not, it wasn't a right and a wrong, but it's a very different model. And it's different and as in just how more you can do kind of whatever you want. How you, you go or? about it. And also you're, you're selling a much wider process. You're selling kind of identity of things. You're mm. trying to solve different problems potentially. And I was just fascinated by that and how that worked. And then those two worlds um, sort of collided really. And I, I started working on personal projects for friends mm. and weekends were too short yeah so it's and that so that kind of developed into your kind of first few projects but at what point did you go okay weekends and evenings aren't enough now it's time to quit quit my job and start my own practice because I, I, I mean it was a i think it's by the time i had a couple of big projects this happening really and i thought i had I had a project for T-Mobile, which didn't actually get built, and one for the hospital club that didn't get built. Wow. But they were two; they were two big enough things yeah, to those make are, those me think. Are, those are two pretty good indicators. So I thought, you know, there's something going on here that's interesting, and you know, I happened to be the right place at the right time where I could afford to take the risk. And did you? Is this out your house, home, garage? I was like, working out my bedroom. Nice. That's, uh, that's the most romantic idea I can think of. You just and, and then it's how long? Sort of romantic, apart from the fact that you you know you you're working at your desk with things on your bed, and then you move things off your bed to go to sleep and backwards yeah. and forwards. And it, and I was using our living room as a workshop, so I was routing, machining, programming, soldering, and I and I was living in a shared house at the time. I'm sure you were very popular. Extremely. It did mean I cleaned up probably most of the place, you know, most of the time. But uh, that, might not, that might, that might not be how it's remembered. But <laughs> I'm imagining some very irate uh, people in your house while you're sanding and routing yeah, at three I, in the morning. It's for a yeah. pitch tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but, and then when did you, when did you think, okay, I think I can make, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get a studio. Because yeah. that's a I big thing. It, it was some friends sort of said, "Look, you've just got to set Get up the, the studio, house. and um, it'd be better if you, yeah, sort of move out." And it was some friends from Imagination actually, and they and there was a really cute sort of designer makers studio in Rotherhithe. So I had a little tiny studio there overlooking the Thames. That's awesome. And you know, it was, it was heavily subsidised by by um, Southwark, who would sort of 
kind of put a rent cap on the building. Oh, really? So it's just a really interesting place to sort of start off. And then we managed to um, last about a year, 18 months there before um, the, the landlord managed to sort <laughs> of... Uh, Rebadge, rebrand the building and re, refurb it and things. But uh, and was and it just you, or did you have kind of? I, I I had a couple of be- I had a couple of students coming in. I had an accountant and I had a sort of part time assistant. So wow. that, that was pretty much it. I, I think I did assistant accountant straight away because I thought there's two things. Yeah. That I just don't do. No. I mean, I do, but I just need help with those things. They and they're just they're so boring as well. Why waste your time on that? So because <laughs> I went to a I went to David Bachelor, an, an artist, uh, and over in Bow, and went to his studio, and he's only been there for I think for a couple of months or whatever. But it's another one of those big group studios, and it's a big warehouse. It's such a cool place to be because every door you looked in was like a little Aladdin's cave. It was like walking through five different movie sets. Every every room I looked in had different things being built. And that's quite, I'm sure being in your bedroom was inspirational to a certain extent. But being around other people in that mindset who've got other ideas and stuff must be, yeah, must be great, I mean, right? That was great. I mean, I, you, know, you walk past door and the, everything from wedding dresses to ceramics to yeah. you know, all sorts of wonderful things happening there. Because as well, a huge part of what, you, what you're doing is actually making, making bits and pieces from scratch as well. So it, it's, yeah, it's not like architecture where you, you, know, you have to pick things off the shelf. It, you're, okay, well, go make it. Go and make these little displays. Go and make it. And so I guess you have to learn a bit of everything, don't you? Yeah, I mean, with our team now, we have... We have um, either on call or within the core team, we have uh, design engineers, industrial designers, interaction designers, software and coding specialists, um, architects, lighting designers, um, 3D designers, um, and and people with all sorts of weird and wonderful hybrid skills. We've had civil engineers in here. We've had um, people with set design. Um, We've had sort of chemists, musicians, all sorts of people in the team that have a wide range of skills. And so when you... So the process, when you get a project in, does, does, I guess you have people running their own projects, but then you've got such a diverse range of skills that at any one point they go... I need your help, I need your help, and, and you just well, everyone pitch in. It's, a, it's very much like that. I mean, we try and sort of establish a sort of team lead on it very early on so they can liaise with the client mm. and um, any fabricating and um, internally and help organise that, um, a bit like a project architect. Yeah. And, um, and that's how we work, but it's very much a team effort. So you could be leading one project and asking from the sort of mix of help one day, next day you might be the specialist help on another project. Guys, so it's quite a a lively office. It's not like you're stuck yes. on one project. Yeah. What was the average time span of a project? Because it's well, super they range from so the Emoticon project was probably three or four months. Is that um, it? Just for, from from getting the first yeah, yeah go for it to having to develop. Absolutely, and there are projects we have. We're working on a project in Toronto at the moment, which is. Um, it's uh, in collaboration with uh, Norman Foster and it's for Toronto Transit Commission. So it's a new underground station and we're creating an artwork there. And we wow. think started 2008, 2009 and we're on site. We'll be, we'll be on site later this year and it'll be open next year, hopefully. So wow. that's, uh, that's a sli- eight, eight years oh, and yeah. we're doing some work <laughs> in the Olympic Park legacy pieces um, in and around the South Park and they're probably going to be up and running same time as the stadium and then one other after crossrail so again wow. and we started on those in 2008 as well so wow. sort of that you know they're some of the long ones but typically i would say probably our average project length is about 18 months two years that's actually okay i thought they would um 
because I was listening to, during my due diligence and research, I was uh, listening to your Westminster talk, and uh, you were saying that uh, they're much more condensed, hyper-accelerated little projects. And uh, yeah, and I, I was trying to work out, like, is it... Because I've just been working on Broadgate, which has been like four and a half years or something, and uh, it would be nice to work on a slightly shorter project. But I guess the, the stresses are different. You've got th- four months to do, you know, something that's going to be seen by thousands of people, and it has to work seamlessly. And... I guess the testing phase alone, you know, you, it's not like you've just sold the last piece of wire and then ship it off. I guess there's a whole range of you being in here and making sure it works. And so, yeah, it's kind of... Yeah, absolutely. The testing is is paramount. Building bits of things is paramount. Mm. And and as you say, some things are immovable deadlines. So construction sites mm. will slip, as we know. Not yeah. always, but sometimes. And But when you work on things like the Olympics, so we did built a... A pavil- we worked on a pavilion for Coca-Cola. We worked on the interior space. And um, the Olympics were when they were. It, that, I have to say, was probably one of the most sort of daunting time-based projects we'd worked on. And we built a system, again, that was very, very bespoke. That was the rotating the rotating lights, wasn't it? The, yeah, exactly. They're sort of opening, closing bubbles, uh, sort of mechatronic pixels that responded to the soundtrack by Mark Ronson and the build- people moving around the building and we had furniture scanning the environment to work out where people were and what they were doing. Yeah. And this, all these, this sort of voxel array of bubbles was responding to all that activity. You know, um, uh, you know how Facebook mines data? Uh, you know you were saying in Coca-Cola, there's thousands of people coming in and out. Do they, can, do they use... The information, because you would know how many people are coming in, how many people are going out, where they're going. You know. Well, they'll know how many people are going in and out. So they'll have visitor numbers, because that's, that's an yeah, yeah, yeah. important return on investment sort yeah. of conversation in that kind of scenario. They'll they'll have, I dare say, they'll have some metrics on that as well, mm. in terms of rough age and gender and, you know. I don't know why they haven't thing. thought of that themselves, yeah. But, um, obvious. <laughs> but a lot of the pieces we're doing, we can now obviously do that sort of digitally. We've got piece live in Toronto at the moment called Back to Front, which is a piece commissioned by a Tridel condominium developer mm. uh, on Front Street West. And it was to bring a little pocket park to life. It's part of their 1% for art and um, for the city. And the granite monoliths, that the, the, there are six of them across the little mm. park, and they basically sense any shadow. So the idea for the piece came from the shadows being cast across the park. I was up the top of the CN Tower and looking at these vast shadows coming from different skyscrapers, yeah. crisscrossing the urban landscape. That wouldn't be great to create an artwork that can respond to those shadows. So the surface is actually a whole, ser- whole grid of circular glass discs which are able to emit light but also perceive the light incident upon them. So we have these light-sensitive surfaces. Now, the nice thing is they're actually running live and we're actually able to see the patterns of light that actually occur each day on the site yeah. here in London. So through oh, really? a process I call the Internet of Art rather than the Internet of Things, nice. we're, able to well see, yeah. we're able to see what these works are doing and we're able to see where people walk, where they go to the east or the west side of the piece of artwork and what kind of shadow they're <laughs> casting and we can sort of kind of work out what kind of day it is. It's overcast, whether the sun is directly shining upon it. So if and it's overcast, you get very poor kind of a definition and if it's yeah, really sunny, you Exactly, can get... and we can work that out by looking at how the shadows are cast onto the artwork. The internet and of art. Is that something you can say is yours? Can you claim I've that? not heard that phrase come from us before. I think you should claim it. That's, and that's uh, my third time I've used it. So. Okay, well, there you go. See, that's, that's claimed. See, my uh, my friend Craig works uh, lives in Toronto. So whereabouts in Toronto is it? Front uh, 300... Uh, 
West Front Street. Do you hear that, Craig? There you go. You can go yeah. and take photos. Go and have there. a look. It's yeah. there. They're um, granite um, monoliths. Um, they're made from local Trontonian granite. And they, um, we even tested them in freezers in Cambridge. Um, where as we, close you can get to Canadian. Yeah, of. so we basically <laughs> tested the Trontonian window, the, the, the winter, the, the freeze thaw cycles, oh, yeah, the, the kind of salt coming in, impact from hockey sticks, all of the above we tested. And did um, it pass? It, it, uh, it passed. Time? I mean, we managed to break things and obviously then improve the design, but all the kind of interfaces between glass and granite and electronics were tested for those sort of 40, 50 degree swings in temperature. Man, that's, that's some intense testing. So how long does, how long does it take to test something? So you go, okay, well, we need it for Christmas. And then do you, do you allow like six months to like kind of test it and crack, crack it? Yeah. Um, we we um, need, yeah, um, quite a reasonable amount of time to, to test things. Um, probably, yeah. I've not even factored in. Like, again, total naivety towards yeah. making these things. But, but, uh, but, you know, we can work out how much risk there is mm. around um, the sort of testing process and how like i guess uh when when we specify stuff architecturally they have to last for a certain amount of time it, 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 not all of your projects are temporary but i imagine the majority of them yeah so like back to front in toronto we talked about an 80-year design life of the sort of main right. bits of granite and steel mm. with a 10-year design life of the electronics so it gets swapped out on little cassettes every 10 years um but typically quite often we'll be following a 25-year design life for the permanent pieces and for the more temporary pieces, obviously, you know, it's for the length of the filming or the event. Mm. But quite often people go, oh, I would like a little bit of that. Yeah. So, like, for example, the, the little mechatronic um, mechanical flippers we created for More 4. Oh, yeah, for the yeah. Identical they're More really 4. cool, yeah. And they were built just for the filming over a week. But then um, Channel 4 turned around and said, we'd less love to have some in our foyer. As sort of like a kind of feature. Wow. So interesting. Then something you've designed in six weeks and put together for some filming as part of a prop for a set mm. is then suddenly, um, you know, someone's going, oh, can we actually have it for a sort of something that might last for, have to last for three years? So you always get these sort of, you know, it's a good problem to have, but then you've got to <laughs> yeah. sort of explain how, what kind of design engineering and industrial design mm. and thinking and mechanical engineering has got to go into that object to then make sure it's ruggedized enough yeah. and has the right redundancy built into it for them to have another life. Because it must be hard to explain to a client. It's slightly more complicated. You can't uh, just we've increase... Got, we've got a beautiful thing here and it works and it looks everything, but <laughs> actually we've then got to go into quite a few of those components, yeah. respec them, test them, really prototype them to go through like a million operations rather than 10,000 operations yeah. and they go oh, really? and they're or, like Jason no you're pulling my leg now no we're going to reach and I'll say <laughs> look we're going to reach 10,000 operations like in 10 days or a day depending on what it is yeah again uh, problems that you can't foresee and then you can't know how long the life of a product is and stuff but um, yeah. going back to because I wanted to um I want to talk about Toronto Stone because you were talking uh, about it in your in your lecture, and you were saying it was. Uh, it, it's funny watching people interact with with these stone stuff to see to see because can they they can't see what they're doing. It's the people on the other side of the stone. Yeah, we designed of... we designed the piece, and it's called Back to Front for a reason because we realised most of the pieces we we designed that are mirror based mm. is quite a common phenomenon in digital art to look at the idea of the digital mirror. Mm. And in fact, 
we first saw this phenomenon when we were commissioned by the Victorian Albert Museum to create Mirror Mirror mm. um, for their big decode exhibition in 2009. And... There, I sort of counted a dozen digital mirrors and I thought we were being sort of clever and unique and we were, of course, one of many. Mm. And whilst we're doing something quite interesting with water and sort of secondary reflections and refractions and and looking at the whole idea of sort of narcissism and things being captured by water, but it made me think, well, I want to do something a bit different. So this time we're going to transfer that silhouette to the other side and then it becomes something that is experienced by an audience that's of the other side of the artwork so it's yeah. about, very much about sort of transgressing this kind of front and moving through the stone and it being actually in times in quite collaborative in terms of two people being able to see each other's Filming silhouettes what, yeah. um but not getting the kind of direct feedback because is, is that because what what drives you to do these is, is it is it the is it the fun of watching people interact with these things because uh, a, a lot of the ones are kind of interactive aren't they some of them are uh, I guess they're interesting to watch. Like the Channel 4 one is just is beautiful to watch, isn't it? But the the ones where people, you see people jumping around and stuff, is that is that kind of, is that what really interests you, people's interaction with I these? I think really until something comes alive, um, like people like seeing the line for the first time and working out where it resolved as an yeah. image, or those moments of discovery, I think are just the most wonderful things where yeah. you sort of just see that recognition or sort of engaging someone and seeing the delight in that process or for example at you know watching our environment at great ormond street hospital for children Mm. basically catching the children's eye we have animals running through a half-tone forest which is on the route from ward to surgery and just seeing that sort of moment of distraction and just adding a little bit of lightness to that otherwise sort of serious journey and sort of quite functional journey for some of the children and <clears throat> that that interaction really is what brings these things to life. I mean, without people, mm. and the same said, buildings aren't necessarily that interesting, but whilst they yeah, might no, be agree, quite yeah. beautiful monuments yeah. or artistic sort of statements, they only come to life with people. And the same is for our work, really, the studio's yeah. work, whether it be a design commission or an art commission. Because I, cause I am... I'm really glad you said that because, uh, you know, you're saying people need to understand it in 20 seconds. That's the kind of, that's the amount they need to take. So it, my test, my litmus test is if my wife likes it and thinks it's interesting. She hasn't, she's a teacher. If she gets it, then I know it's a universally acceptable thing because she, I've dragged around so many buildings. Her tolerance for architecture is absolutely zero. So uh, when she saw the Great Ormond Street, she's a primary school teacher. And she just thought, because she just saw the video playing in the background that I was watching on my laptop. And she thought it was absolutely amazing. And uh, yeah, and she loved the whole story behind it. And um I was uh, I was trying to I've been trying to work out why why I like installations so much and why I'm so drawn. There's kind of a few websites I really like. Yours is obviously a very prominent one, and I think it's the element of surprise. You can surprise people, and I think in architecture you can't you don't really it doesn't have the same immediate impact, and it's it's a very static, unmoving thing. And I I love architecture, but the the, the the ability to surprise someone, especially because I think some of the ones that I liked of, of yours are ones that you don't necessarily know they're there and they kind of catch you by surprise. And that's the best part, right? I guess I, that's why I like reading magazines, things like Blueprint and stuff. You turn the page and there's like a wow image, right? And it, it's like an interactive display. And because I, I did my sixth year dissertation 
and they used a lot of your work and I was like I want to do like an interactive wall and my tutor who will remain nameless uh, was like that's not architecture you can't do an interactive wall so I got steered away from it and then it's so nice to come back and get to a chance to interview you know six years later and think no it is you know you can it is architecture but design and architecture but it's that I don't know the more interesting side I've it is interesting because we I did get asked I think when I was I'm trying to think where I got asked, but the other day, and it's a question that keeps cropping up. And when are you going to do a building, Jason? Yeah, <laughs> Which I bet is it quite does, an interesting yeah. one. But I would sort of say, well, some of our pieces are enclosures and are sort of like pavilion-like. Mm. So we're we're kind of getting there without really having the same sort of functional requirements. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Well, you brought- well, they are actually because they're going to be waterproof. They've got to got to resist the sort of rigors of use and um i would say that uh actually i think you'll find the stuff we design is significantly more complicated than just a house (laughs) anyone can do a house installation you try making that move and rotate at the same time yeah exactly i mean and and a whole set of new multidisciplinary input (laughs) yeah it's easy designing house yeah i'm glad you mentioned blueprint because you might have seen the work we had published in blueprint magazine which was about the 10 downing street project I, I, I had yeah during my research again it had it had cropped up on my uh, my Google search but yeah tell me more about so that. that that again at a very house like scale which actually number ten isn't really a house it's an extraordinary theatre it is amazing I, I've, um, yeah it's huge isn't it yeah, it just it, goes on for <laughs> it's it's a wonderful kind of um, um, sort of apparition um, of things and. Um, yeah, we got invited to work on the front door. And this came out of a conversation we're supporting and commissioned by the great team who are celebrating British creativity and innovation around the world and basically trying to get people to buy more of it, um, also visit Britain and mm-hmm. learn and study about it, visit Britain in terms of tourism and um, buy British products and, and creative Good. ingenuity yes, yeah. and all of these things. and. They wanted something that was a sort of living, breathing, interactive piece they could commission that was dynamic, which they could use for their campaign, but not on posters. It's going to be on the on the web and the, the kind of films we made of mm. it. And they needed an iconic site. And we were sitting there at number 10. They said, what about the door? And I said, what do you mean, what about the door? <laughs> well, can we create an installation on the door? And I said, okay. I wrote down, I said, door, yeah, yeah. great idea. And we talked about <laughs> a few other ideas as well and came back to it a few weeks later. And they said yeah, we think we might be able to do the door and that might work. And I was like, that's extraordinary. Is that something we can really do? And we went through probably three or four months of security protocol. And, Dear David. And, 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 and um, we had to name our teams quite early on as well. So, for example, probably three or four months before we were on site, these are the people that are installing it and hoping everyone's going to be kind of fit on the day. And then basically there's an opportunity that became available where the door is is swapped over for routine maintenance so a new coat of lacquer Mm. and just to check that it's all all right and it's obviously well a nice secure door and end of january this year the door is being replaced and they allowed for a bigger window of not having this big secure door where we could put our sort of digital replica of the door so it allows you to see through it um so there is again a whole array of sensors and pixels within it that see what's behind it and show it's active camouflage is a technical term is it still so up now is it? it's now touring the world i think it's on somewhere between um oh, london and, and um and mexico and milan i forget which but it's been to uh shanghai uh, suzhou paris 
and it's part of the Great Creations exhibition to sort of How talk cool about. Is that? It's, it's on tour with Aston Martin and well. a mulberry bag, and I think some fab, rather fabulous um, portraits of the Queen by David <laughs> Bailey. So there's sort of quite an interesting sort of spread of different sort of artifacts it's sort of on tour with. But it's a it was a collaboration with Benchmark, who mm. make fantastic. Uh, joinery and furniture and we wanted something that would evoke the quality and this is really important about our work it evoked the quality of the actual door so we got tulip wood with nearly as many coats as lacquer and paint as the real thing mm. same door furniture but under all of this we've embedded this sort of digital composites which will allow us to sort of sense so like tiny little cameras and stuff and sensors yeah, are all kind sensors of all built in and for those interesting in the geekery behind this, we've got a Raspberry oh, yeah. Pi inside the door, force ventilation, making all of that work. No but it's a tulip wood frame and otherwise looks exactly like the black glossy door. It's very, very mirrored. So had a lot of fun filming that. And if you look at that online, you'll see me walking up, pretending to be visiting David. <laughs> and you'll see the policeman come up from behind the door and you'll see his silhouette. And then you'll see me going in. Then you see me dancing behind the door. So dancing in number 10 foyer. <laughs> I thought you said when the Four. policeman come up, you see him grab me, haul me away. But did you ever think, um, so what's 2015? So, so 15 years ago, you started the studio or you know, getting on for 14. Mm. Do you ever sit down and go, God, you know, I've just done number 10 Downing Street door. This is, uh, do, do you ever think back or does it seem so gradual that you kind of it's, don't reflect like I that? I mean, it's getting gradual and it's sort of quite interesting to sort of see where our work is being positioned to make difference mm. and where people are asking, inviting for us to create interventions. And I think intervention is a good word because it's about making difference to an ex- the sort of, the, the arty sort of definition of intervention is making difference to an environment as it stands now through sort of physical or artistic intervention. There's a different meaning in politics, but this is the artistic kind of meaning of the word. So, you know, this year, you know, to work on the Downing Street door and the top 40 stories of the Shard is sort of quite an interesting scale of Yeah, you've got a good good contrast of uh, scales there, haven't you? (laughs) Because one of the... Because, again, doing my research, uh, I noticed that you... Part of your part of you, uh, I guess, expanding the online presence of your studio. You you employed I can't remember the name of the company, but someone to kind of their specific role was to actively engage your work and increase your presence. So, and like, so that must have been a. You might be talking about a company called Semaphore, I yeah, believe. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so again, like a a conscious decision by yourself that. I guess you, okay, I need to, we've got all this work, this massive catalogue work, but we need to kind of push it. The only reason I ask is because I'm doing the podcast and I'm really interested in like, oh crap, how do people know where to go or how to listen to it? Or well, how to like I mean, it when it's published, you know, my these these guys will say, well, you've got to tweet this time of day because there's the most peaceful people listening to Twittersphere or if it's in your newsletter, I think like Tuesday morning's good, Friday morning's good. Friday afternoons, you know, it's all these conversations about when you put things out, when you publish them, is don't do it two in the morning because it'll get just lost in someone's inbox. You might think you're being incredibly efficient and clever, but you've actually got to be very, very precise. And it it really intrigues me, the design and the kind of um, thinking behind just publishing work. Yeah, because again, it must be like another process that you can, like 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 your lion uh, that can, you know, you've, You've seen how you can dial into Twitter, and it's such a massive thing. There must be, hey, what did you call it? The Internet of Art? 
Yes. Ding. That's that's coined. <laughs> that that kind of idea that you can well one increase the presence of your studio, but there's like there must be. Are you kind of looking at well, what's next? Like what else are you uh, looking to do? Is there more internet stuff or? Well, I think again. I mean, I did quite a lot of talks about two or three years ago about the Internet of Things. People talking about intelligence embedded in objects mm. and networks of objects talking to each other. But however, I then realised I've been doing it for 20 years, um, building bits of intelligent buildings and talking to each other. So it's not really a new thing, but it's the organisation of it and it's certainly the mm. sort of how it's publicised and talks about. So, you know, it, it's just understanding how to describe that to people and how they can sort of understand it really. Because I am, again, so going back to the kind of the development of your studio, I'm always really interested in, uh, was it clear to you, you're thinking, right, after 10 years we've been going, how do I, had, had the, did the practice ever plateau? Did you did you think, oh, I'm not getting as much work in or we need more in or I, I want to grow and expand? I think, I, wanna... I think the sort of plateaus we've had are the same as everyone else's plateaus. Mm. So they're financial. Yeah. Um, and therefore, world markets changing quite rapidly very quickly or world events happening that mean people put things on pause mm. um are a significant force i mean we're lucky we're cross-sector we're working mm. in 22 countries currently or have been that's a good spread of projects um, isn't it so I, I there is a sort of you know you you can have bad luck and things can turn on and off mm. but but you can sort of spread the risks and therefore i think yeah the only plateaus have happened i think you know 2008 was not we had a lot of work but suddenly a lot of the big things dried up very quickly. Mm. I mean, we re-established things, but it, it was a wake-up call. Um, yeah, bet, yeah. and, and, and I think to a smaller degree, it happened very, at the very beginning as well, where two big things I thought were going to happen didn't. Mm. But, you know, you, you get on with it and you work out to read those signals quicker, faster, better, mm. and also to spread the risk. Yeah. Have you found that sp- spreading it across countries means that... Do, do you notice our work's gone down in well, one country, work's picking up in another? You will notice that. So we, had, we were very lucky and had and 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 well c- cleverly exploiting the the opportunities in Canada whilst they did not get uh, into the same situation with respect to the sort of banking crisis in 2008 mm. so we had a lot more work in Canada now, now the work in US is picking up a lot more and it's sort of the, the, the sort of you know the balance is changing um, in the UK depending whether things are privately funded or publicly funded has mm. changed quite a lot just within terms of the sort of financial setup yeah so the work we once got originally through sort of publicly funding thing is now a lot more through privately funded things currently yeah but obviously that change is based on the kind of political um, so, you know the, the, the setup and, and 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 how where money's going to really and and who's looking at who can fund things so do you get Having, having work in 22 countries means that you must... I take it you go to Canada regularly and go around, or do you, is that why you are a um, slightly larger team who well, take it in Well, I to like go? to give people opportunities to go and see and do things. And politically. It, it, um, it, it, it gives people inspired, and they've got to sort mm. of see the, the kind of environments we're installing the things. They've got to meet the clients. So it doesn't really make much point for me to go that often. Obviously, clients every now and then go, like to see Jason, or we have a moment in time. Yeah where, you know, um, quite often I'm pitching and or looking at sort of key moments of projects. But ideally, it's the team going to see these things. They're working on it. It's, yeah, that it's, 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 you know, it's their baby. 
yeah. uh, at the end of the day. That's um, cool. So it's good for them to see it, really. And do they go out and for weeks at a time, then? No, like... Yeah, well, last year we had a team in Beijing and a team in Toronto for quite long periods of time, like three, four weeks at a time, months at a time, actually, in Beijing. Really? Wow. So any... You wouldn't ever set up a studio. Did you set up a temporary studio or like... Well, so we've technically had a temporary studio, certainly in Beijing. Um, And I should add, well, and in Toronto, we've been there a lot. We nearly... We nearly have in New York, but that we were sort of more a person on the ground liaising with the sort of different opportunities in terms of new business. Mm. Having said that, we do technically have a second studio in Glasgow currently. Oh, really? Full time. What are, what are those guys working on then in Glasgow? Is there so, a specific reason um, they've gone out there? So, there? so uh, the designer, um, uh, Ellie Lakin, who's in, in Glasgow, she moved there and we decided it would be a good idea to, to sort of take space there and, and she's been working on a lot of the Canadian projects for example so it didn't matter mm. whether she flew from Glasgow or London and she could still carry on working mm. from Glasgow and actually that's sort of um, I'm, I'm going to uh, Dundee next week to go and look at some opportunities there and um, and there might be some other opportunities in Glasgow so I'm, a, I'm half Scottish, so it okay. kind of makes sense and feels quite quite at home. Um, you know, many family holidays spent in Scotland. So <laughs> yeah. it's actually been a, not something that's been flan- planned, but it's, it's sort of evolved that way. That's really cool. So what, what um, are there areas that you haven't got into that you really want to? I mean, how many projects have you done? Like 300 or something? Yeah, we've done 300. about three or 400 projects. We're doing all right, uh, we're doing all right. Yeah. But are there ones that you go, oh, I really wish we could do that project but well i suppose out of the 2000 we've worked on <laughs> we've built three four hundred of them so there, there are probably some in that mix we we would have liked to have realized some very large extraordinary media facades yeah. on very large towers um it's, it's you know we're working on a project in san francisco where the whole city could interact with the top of the new tower there and it was just you know, it's just really wow. interesting to think of that scale. How can people understand this work yeah. and interact it, interact with it at city scale? It's about urban design. It's a new type of urban design. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of really interesting. And how then that gets we get drawn into master planning and thinking about wayfinding and how you make spaces. And that that is something new which we're getting drawn into on quite an interesting mm. scale. Um, so that that's just something that's developing that I'm very interested in and keen to see more of. Um, I've I've sort of joked but not without some kind of um, backing that would like to sort of see see projects at certain orbits uh, around this planet so I mean I think that there are opportunities for sort of communication and observation projects that are going to be ambitious literally in near space or space so uh, (laughs) we we, you know we're not going to stop anywhere really it'd be really nice to sort of explore lots of different types of environments because I was thinking um, the I guess the advantage a studio has now you know you've got such a kind of big background of projects is you were saying that when you did the digital reflection artworks and you know actually there was quite a few people having done similar similar things but now you guys can work at a scale and achieve projects of a scale that kind of puts you in a much smaller category of practices that can I achieve there's the, i'm lucky to say i've had some brilliant people work for me and some of them have gone on to set up their own things and that's obviously a sign of just you know people that are kind of really interested um, and there are obviously it's a genre of work that's exploding mm. because of the technology being ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and but nothing is going to change track record and having built things at a certain scale. Yeah, and also having seen, you know, it's very well putting things into galleries or having temporary work. 
but we're now going back to look at work we finished 10 years ago and refurbing it and updating it and things. Mm. So having that track record of well, seeing yeah. work. So like, for example, we're working on Litmus, which is a piece we have on the A13 running out of east out of London. Mm-hmm. And we're currently refurbishing that for Havering Borough Council. Um, so it's sort of new LED clusters, new new brains, that type of thing. Clean up, rethink about some of the things. But it's it's invaluable to learn from your from your past. Yeah, yeah, I bet it um, is. As, whilst you're moving forward and that knowledge and know-how mm. and, and process is sort of extraordinarily useful. And if you don't learn from that, and you, also if you're not making mistakes or you're not improving things, you're not kind of moving yeah. forward. I mean, again, clients must love the fact you're like, well, not only can we achieve that scale. You can go to one that's 10 years old, still working, still kind of... And I think also the different affiliations we have are interesting. So Mm. I'm a member of BAFTA, so we kind of work, we sort of work on the edges of sort of film and TV. We're obviously very architectural studios, so the built environment. We are obviously liaising and working with lots of clients in the advertising industry. Um, And then just our experience within sort of physical computing and spatial interaction design means that we get drawn into those worlds and that those skills are being called upon. Yeah. So f- recently, for example, um, like working on the, the Tate Modern Bloomberg Connects project was really interesting because it was about yeah. a visitor experience mm. and designing something that's an interface for a building that has a function. Yeah. And we're no longer creating an art installation. It's a design installation. It's something that's just got to work. It's doing a job. It's attracting people to the Tate Modern. It's attracting people to interact with the collections. Yeah. They're data mining, the people that are talking to it. We're contributing our own drawings to the collection um, through through the people that are interacting th- with, with the devices. And so that's sort of a new journey as well, actually being sort of commissioned yeah. as as experiential designers as people designing sort of visitor experiences and it's Cause that, kind of I an mean, interesting new field because one of the, again i'm just jealous of the projects that you work on which is why i was like going through websites today going oh, you worked with aston martin worked with dyson worked with channel four you know clients who yeah i guess that you know they're they're very aware of how much things cost but they're also very aware of the kind of allure of something entertaining and, and the kind of visual side of everything whereas uh, a lot of the clients that make have a very serious developers and things, and uh, I guess the um, the fun side isn't there as much. It's not to kind of naively say all your projects are just fun, but they all look. I don't know. They have a. They just especially. Um, I'm so bad at names. There is it. Wind for light. It's the one you had w- on. T- Winter light. Winter yes. light. Yeah. Sorry. And uh, again, um, I had ideas doing my dissertation. I was like, wouldn't it be great if <sighs> Jason Bruce has done it? done it again done it better and like just the idea of having lots of propellers on the roof that lit up at night I, l- I love the idea of having um uh you know in gladiator he runs his hands through the through the corn but they light up as they come past but you'd done it with sticks with wind on the top and i remember going down there and seeing it and just thinking he has paid for that that's not, <laughs> that's not fair <laughs> while i'm doing uh insulation details and like doing setting out steps and stuff and i just thought oh, yeah just every time i go on the website you must you must kind of feel well i mean you know i think you know, keeping buildings warm and ventilated so that we don't kind of overstep our kind of footprint, um, steps that have set out so you don't jar your knees. Um, <laughs> you know, things like that, they're so incredibly important. And, and, yeah, and I you think, you know, such a rosy picture. <laughs> and, and all of that sort of detail, yeah. and that, which, is like, which I got from my architectural training and mm. my experience, we put into the projects that are fun, but that, yeah. that sort of seriousness 
is there either in the narrative or mm. certainly in the sort of production. Yeah. So, again, at the end of the day, if we <laughs> create that kind of outcome, which is about kind of joy, it's about fun, it's about engagement, it's yeah. about creating catalysts for conversation about our environment. If that's happening, that's brilliant. And, yeah. and obviously that's what we're aiming to do. Do you, um, with children, do you, has that changed your kind of view on how you, do you, do you, do you want your kids to kind of, you know, wow, and I designed that, or are you, does that in the back of your head, you know, this kind of more cartoon-like, playful, you know, with the with the Great Ormond Street, you know, the animals running in the background, that's, that's that was obviously geared towards children, but... Yeah, I, I think, I'm sure subliminally... Have you regressed more childish, is what I'm basically saying, since you've had kids? I think, the, <laughs> I think the, there may be sort of a more playful nature to what we're doing, but I think it's always been there, so... It might bring it might be bringing it out more. Um, certainly, it means that with some great sort of engineers for prototyping and testing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have three of them, so they can come and look at things. And certainly, I bring the odd thing home and show it to them, and they sort of interact with it. A good um, a good test to see how rugged your buildings are. like. They must just exactly. try and rip stuff to pieces in five seconds. Exactly, <laughs> just leave something out and don't tell them not to touch it, and then see what happens. <laughs> well, we're coming up to the hour mark, so so I will uh, I'll wrap things up now. But I did want to. Um, so I've done three podcasts. So I've done one with uh, Assemble Studios, one with David Bachelet, and one with Studio Weave. And uh, each one that I've interviewed has had a slightly... Assemble Studios and Dave Bachelet didn't really engage very much in social media. And then Studio Weave, they, they do a bit. Uh, but you guys, I was wondering, is is that an important side of your of, of your studio? The, do you engage much with it? Is it more just... By the way, we're doing this gallery. Or- I think it's just an important part of our communication repertoire. So if you want to talk to the modern world, mm. you're, of course, going to engage with it. It doesn't sort of affect everything we do. And yeah. there's no there's no substitute. And I've learned this through projects like projects in Beijing for meeting people face to face and telling <laughs> them about it. Yeah. And there's no substitute for walking across a room when you're about to send an email to a colleague. You've yeah. got to really work out how communi- communication works and okay these give you greater coverage mm. greater visibility and certain people will only work in a certain way yeah but at the end of the day you know you've got to remember that quite often that the sort of more primitive not sort of conventional forms of communication work the best but it's part of our repertoire yeah you can't ignore it it's it's massively important so you do I, feel I find like you it, should have it. I find it's really interesting. I'm sort of fascinated by it, especially yeah. since I'm a, I'm not generation whatever I should be to be doing it natively, from from you know three mm. or four years old. Um, but at the same time, you know, I kind of understand and interact mm. with it. But you know, not as much as I should possibly. But then other times, you know, I'm sort of trying to find. I'm trying to use everything in a balanced way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So we we use. We use Twitter. Um, I don't use Facebook as much because I sort of see it as more of a personal thing. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, people have different views on that. Um, we're sort of Instagramming things. We're putting things out on Vines. Um, Vine, I did, Vine we, must be great we, for you we, guys. We, it's the... really, really good for little sort of interactive yeah, yeah. things. We did, um, in fact, I did my first Periscope um, broadcast from the lion. I don't even show. know what Periscope is. So, <laughs> so have you heard of Meerkat? No. Nope. This sort of other version. So basically, it's an opportunity um, to broadcast live from an event, and people can only see it whilst you're broadcasting. Really? So we oh, could, right. we could we could have done this via Periscope instead. 
different format. It's nice listening to voices rather yeah. than seeing a tired me at the end of the day. <laughs> but but it's just a sort of different way. If we were talking about a project specifically, hmm. uh, perhaps that, we should do that another time. Yeah. And oh, actually I feel out of the loop. I don't, I've never even heard of Periscope. <laughs> well, so, but, so hashtag, know. I hope I get a job in Beijing, I hope I get work in Beijing doesn't work. And you're saying you should go out there. No substitute for human contact. Well, I think primarily, I mean, Working in China, for example, even the conference call, we worked out it was much better to negotiate mm. contracts and move the project quicker if we just went out for dinner with a client really? on a regular basis. Yeah. And that's how we, next day, something will get signed off. You know, we've yeah. been waiting six months for. And it was just that personal interaction. They could then trust you. They didn't know us. We're a company in London. Yeah. How do you know what you do? How do you know? And it's just, and the, 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 the same, the sort of mutual distrust at the beginning is, Mm. tangible in both directions yeah. so it's sort of obvious you think about it afterwards that well if you've arranged some sort of webex conversations or skype conversations that's going to solve yeah. it all it's not <laughs> but it helps it yeah. does mean you don't fly as much perhaps and it does mean you can sort other sorts of things out and i then had to work out like for example well, i'm not going to talk to them on whatsapp but we need i think is it wechat in china so i then realized that i can speak to all my chinese clients on wechat so, you know, you pick up these funny little things. The so software it's, language and foreign languages, all sorts of things. Oh, my <laughs> word. But it's just, you know, you just, you just adapt. Yeah. And as a sort of small SME in the creative sector, you've got to be really adaptable. And however sort of artistic you're coming across, however sort of small team, you've just got to be massively adaptable and flexible to these things. Well, that was, uh, that's, I'm going to end on that. But that was, that was really, really good fun. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks very much, Ben. <laughs> There we go. That was episode number four of the Create More podcast with Jason Bruges. Um, again, I've just been listening back to that, trying to put all the other editing things and uh, put the intro in. And uh, I uh, I really, really enjoyed doing it. I mean, I, I say that after every podcast, but I, I genuinely get a buzz out of going around to people's offices and studios and finding, well, finding out one more about the studio, but one more about how they work, more about the person and how the studio started. And uh, one of the things I was really happy about was... Um, Again, I'd, I'd never met Jason. Um, uh, we'd, we'd emailed, but I'd, I'd, I'd never spoken to the guy. I'd never been to studios, and he obviously didn't know me. So um, it was really fun, kind of, I guess you could say, winning him round. I mean, uh, that's kind of how it felt to me anyway when doing the interview, because, uh, I mean, as you're familiar with at the beginning, I don't I don't have an intro. I, I don't... I don't try and make this feel like a very formal interview. I try and keep it like a, like, well, I get, I always sell it like a pub chat. You know, this is, uh, imagine if it was you interviewing someone that you were really interested in and passionate about, and you just had an hour of their time to talk. And that kind of format was really fun. And uh, what I'd, um, Jason Bruges had a laptop, which, uh, which had a lot of information on at the beginning, which he would open, which he was using. And, uh, obviously, you know, he's, he's very press savvy and, uh, and as you have to be with a practice, um, and as you're kind of, you're the main sales force behind it. So, uh, I really enjoyed trying to, trying to find, you know, trying to get through that. And, uh, at the beginning, you know, I asked him lots of questions. He had lots of information and I really enjoy the process of, uh, of chatting to him and kind of finding out more about him as a person. And then it was really fun when he suddenly kind of looked down at his laptop and suddenly realized that he, he hadn't been, he hadn't been looking at it for the last like half an hour. And, uh, you know, we'd genuinely been chatting and it's kind of, that's what I feel is the strongest point about this podcast is it's, it's a genuine chat. 
uh, and it, there's there's um, you know I'm not trying to trying to get into the publicity of a of a practice or anything, and uh, I, I'm just genuinely interested. So that was really satisfying to try and uh, to try and uh, slowly win him round at the beginning, and because. Uh, you know who am I? I'm just a random guy who turns up, and uh, and I have no intro, and uh, I try and sell it as a free chat. So uh, it's always funny watching them kind of their kind of initial reaction to when I am. Um, th- there's no formal questioning. Like I haven't. I I don't use anything. I'm I'm literally just sat in front of him with a microphone. I don't have any notes in front of me. Um, I do do a lot of research and I do write a lot of notes. I don't just go in completely cold. Um, but. I try and remember it all, so so it does genuinely feel like a chat, and uh, and I hope you and you enjoy it, and uh, you know a lot of you are, and, and loads of you are downloading it, and uh, yeah, it's it's really satisfying to kind of see it gain some momentum, and uh, and people are saying lots of nice things, which helps. Um, so less of me nattering, and uh, I'm going to end by telling you who's on next fortnight's podcast, which is episode number five. Uh, I'm really excited about this because I didn't think I'd get an interview with him, uh, and it is uh, Johnny Tucker, who is the editor, the chief editor of Blueprint Magazine. Um, if you don't know Blueprint Magazine, they're kind of they are one of the biggest and most prominent architecture publications. I mean, they used to be a monthly magazine. Um, which uh, which I absolutely loved. It was like a, a brilliant kind of combination of architecture, design, and it, it it wasn't it wasn't all serious as I'd been used to previously on uh, other magazines. And uh, I don't know if I've said this before, but I probably will mention it quite a few more times that uh, my third year work got published in it uh, at university, which basically made my year. And um, so I've always loved that magazine, and they've just changed to uh, they now do a three every two months they do a magazine and it's significantly more expensive but you get a much much nicer magazine uh or it's almost a book now so yeah so to end he's on next fortnight's podcast and i'm going around to their new studios uh which they're kind of this is why we've delayed the podcast for like the interview for a week because they're redoing their their office and um yeah, I, I cannot wait to find out how the how do you run a, like an award winning architectural magazine? Like, what, you know, what drives them? All the things behind it, like yeah, all the things that I love about it, I'm going to find out. And um, if you have any questions you want to you want to find out, and and I'll ask him. Um, yeah, email me at ben at played p l a y d studio dot com, and uh, yeah, that'd be amazing. So um, I really hope you enjoyed that, and I can't wait for next fortnight's podcast. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.